0: Web3 With Me is a discussion-style show where creators, marketers, entrepreneurs, and investors share how they are solving the core problem plaguing Web3, perception. The perception problem is preventing mass adoption. It is narrative, framing, and terminology, and it's inhibiting onboarding, engagement, and retention of users and customers. Web3 currently requires a level of technical understanding and responsibility due to a lack of protections that the masses do not currently desire. Web3 with me will provide insights for Web3 native companies and others considering a Web3 strategy to tackle that perception problem. My guest this week is Jacob Robinson, host of the Law of Code podcast, where he talks to the top legal leaders in Web3. Additionally, Jacob is an associate attorney at McCarthy Tetro, one of the most prominent law firms in Canada, where he helps clients like crypto exchanges navigate the complex regulatory landscape in Canada. In these two roles, Jacob hopes to be a leader in stewarding policy forward and helping to legitimize the industry by enabling more effective formations of capital and business structures. If you want an update on how to build a sustainable business in Web3, this is a great episode. One additional disclaimer, the opinions expressed by Jacob Robinson in this episode are solely his own and do not constitute legal advice nor the opinion of McCarthy Tetra. LFG baby, let's start vibing. Zach French is a bar certified attorney and nothing expressed by Zach during Web3 with me shall be considered legal advice. All the opinions expressed by Zach and his guests are solely their own opinions. All content in Web3 with me is for informational purposes only. Zach and his podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed during Web3 with me. Welcome to the show, Jacob. Thank you, Zach.
1: It's a pleasure to be here.
0: You know, early on in my Web3 podcast journey, I came across your show, The Law of Code, um, and enjoyed quite a few episodes. Uh, I know that you and I have had a few conversations, so I'm looking forward to digging deep into uh, to Web3 with you.
1: Yeah, me as well. It's been a a fun journey since I started the podcast almost two years ago now. And I've had a chance to interview over a 100 of the top lawyers, regulators, and entrepreneurs in the space to learn about the legal side of Web3. And I think it's amazing to me how much of a foundation regulation sets for builders and, and entrepreneurs across the world. So, it's something, especially in light of all the regulation by enforcement that we've been seeing. I think these are important conversations to have. So, really looking forward to diving into that with you.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's pretty awesome, and and always I would I would say it's it's timely, uh, but I feel like it's always timely <laughs> uh, <laughs> lately because we never know what's going to happen, especially after Ginsler's testimony last week. Um, so anyways, I usually start these podcasts, letting my audience get to know who you are, uh, even outside of this space, you know, what makes Jacob Jacob. So feel free to start wherever you'd like.
1: That's a big question. Usually I don't venture outside of the crypto space with, uh, with the, (laughs) with my questions, but for me, I mean, I grew up, uh, I'm Canadian. I grew up just outside Toronto. I live in Toronto now. I'm a securities regulatory lawyer at McCarthy Tatro, one of the largest firms in Canada. And we I primarily help crypto asset exchanges and participants in the space navigate the regulatory landscape in Canada. Um, in my spare time, I still in the crypto space run the podcast called Law of Code that I mentioned before. I'm also very interested in sports. That's been a big part of my life. I love playing basketball, football, soccer, volleyball, almost anything that there was some form of competitive aspect to it. Now it's a bit more of golf and spike ball and uh, leisurely sports that you can play on weekends without too much commitment. Uh, but but that's always been a big part of my life. I enjoy fantasy football, spending time with friends, playing board games, going out um, to concerts and things like that, and traveling as well. I like to make sure that I'm getting in one or two travel. I call them adventures where you go mountain biking or, or hiking or climbing, things like that every year. So I like to think uh, I think the problem that I have sometimes is I enjoy life a bit too much. There are so many things in life that I find interesting and fun to do and explore, and crypto is no different in that. My curiosity has kept me really going down the rabbit hole in this space. Uh, but in terms of what makes me me, I think those are a few things that that I would highlight. Yeah, it seems
0: like you're you've got you obviously have a competitive aspect to what you're doing, but also you enjoy a, a good adrenaline junkie activity. Um, just to like keep things interesting. Um, what, what did it take for you, uh, to want to be a lawyer? I mean, law school, I'm a lawyer too. It's a big commitment. Uh, it is, it's not an easy job out there. There's a lot of burnout in the the legal community. What was it about you that attracted, uh, legal?
1: I think for me, it was the the problem solving nature of it. I always enjoyed problem solving. When I was younger, that would mean helping my mom with the remote and figuring out how to turn the volume down on the TV or go back to the channel that she was on before I changed it. Uh, but then as I got older, it, it became advising businesses and helping friends with situations they were in. And my favorite part, I, I studied business in undergrad and I went to school in Germany for about two years to get a degree there and we would do these case competitions. And you would sit down, you'd have either a couple days or a couple hours to think of a solution to the problem that was presented in the case. And I always enjoyed that aspect of my education the most. And I thought, how can I do this full time? And law seemed to be a way to do that. You're constantly presented with novel, interesting problems for very important situations. The difference is there's a little bit more pressure when they're real life situations rather than just a case competition that you might not win. Um, so it's been a, it has been an interesting journey. And I think what makes it more sustainable for me is that I'm working in a field I'm interested in with clients who I truly want to see succeed. Not that other lawyers don't, but I think when you're in the crypto space and you see the promises of this new technology, it does give you a little bit extra push compared to someone in an established industry like real estate or mining, where the rules have been in place for so long, that players have been in place for so long. It's much more of an established culture, whereas I find the crypto side of law is very interesting. It's constantly evolving, and there aren't too many people who stay on top of it. So I do feel a bit of a not pressure, but an ongoing obligation to continue learning in the space and, and it makes it enjoyable for me.
0: Yeah, that's that's a really good point. I mean, oftentimes on the show, it comes up of like NFT time or crypto time or Web3 time, how things are just moving so fast. I've never thought about it as an aspect to keep a, a, a legal job interesting right? I mean, you've you've got to constantly be reading that what kind of, um, I guess, either habits or practices or solutions do you use to make sure that you're on top of that?
1: I think the the biggest one that I've done is aim to be consistent. Like once you once you build that habit of okay, a big announcement comes out, I'm going to read about it post a Twitter thread on it, you set the expectation for yourself, and then it becomes less of an obligation and more of just who you are and, and part of your identity. So for me, it's been, at initially it was at least curiosity, and I just wanted to know what these rules are. And now that I'm much busier with a legal profession compared to in law school, it's more of a time commitment and harder to justify given certain time constraints that I'm facing now. So a lot of it is just that interest that has continued in the the automation of the habit has made it a lot easier for me i think the second point though is it has to come naturally like if i wasn't genuinely interested I wouldn't be able to do it. And if you asked me to come up with Twitter threads on the updates pertaining to the Canadian Income Tax Act, I would just, I don't know what I would do. It. I'd probably have to leave Canada just to avoid that obligation because it, <laughs> it's not as interesting for me, whereas seeing what's happening with the regulatory landscape and crypto in Canada is really interesting. And I want to keep tabs on how it progresses. So it, it, it is less of an obligation and more of just something that I've built into who I am.
0: Uh, You know, one of the things that we explore a lot on this show related to that is um, the perspective uh, that Web3 crypto blockchain suffers from. Right. The the public perception that it's for scammers, it's trading pictures of monkeys back and forth. Um, I try to bring people on the show that are bringing a legitimate eye to this. And I think you're one of those people that embodies that. How do you think about that when you're talking to clients? Are they already coming to you with kind of like trust in crypto, trust in the system? Or are you having to add that as an aspect on top of knowing the regulation?
1: I mean, when it comes to clients in the crypto space, there isn't much convincing to do for for them. I find they have a really good understanding of where the opportunities are here. But there are lawyers in the hallways who make jokes, there are friends of mine who crack, send me pictures of the price of Bitcoin when it drops below a certain level, um, especially many other altcoins that I won't name. Um, but I think a big problem in the industry is that we're so quick to dismiss the monkey trading and, and the trading of pictures of monkeys and things like that. Is well, that's not what it is. To be fair, that is a good part of what crypto has been. And if we just ignore that and pretend it doesn't exist, I don't think we move the narrative forward in the way we want. What I always try to do is read the best, most critical articles that I can find of crypto to find out where my blind spots might be and, and where I might be over enthusiastic. When I was in law school and I was learning about crypto, I thought. We don't need fiat currencies, like this is the future. And I was I was a bit naive in, in my takes on what the future could look like. And I think as I as I've gotten a bit more experienced in the space, it's become clear that just because there are aspects of crypto that might not be beneficial to society, things like wash trading. And, trading of NFTs that might not have any value to society at large, doesn't mean the technology itself isn't useful. Just like in the early stages of the internet, when you had pirating of music, for example, doesn't mean the future can't be streaming and and so much better for everybody in the world. And so when I look at crypto, I think that, To me, what gets me the most excited is when people say things like, well, how do you feel after this FTX collapse? And what do you tell? How do you justify that given what you say crypto promises? And to me, every example that people give are perfect examples of why crypto is beneficial. And when you look at centralized players who have held control in such small authoritative roles within the business, It's so obvious why a larger decentralized model that can remove that necessary trust and the expense that you pay for that trust in a way that can provide still the same tools and benefits to the end user really gets me excited. And it's something I try to focus on when we think about crypto in general and the benefits that it will give to society moving forward.
0: Yeah, I think a few interesting points. One, you got to find balance. Right. Um, There's not, not all of it is going to be trading NFTs and some of it's going to be just using the technology to do certain things. Um, But that doesn't mean that digital art is useless, right? Um, The ability to bring out the creative side and certain people that really didn't have other avenues to make a living prior to something like this and having collectors who truly believe in supporting those artists right? Like that's still there. That doesn't change because of a crash, right? Uh, Are there less people involved? Absolutely. Um, But you know, when I think about that stuff, I I, I think of the same when I think about things like FTX. And, you know, I saw a meme the other day, it's like 10 deep. Oh, finally, we got rid of that one guy. Oh, shoot, there's another guy. Oh, shoot, there's another guy. And you're going all the way down. Guess what? Fraud, deceit, um, grifters, if you will, that's been happening in every industry that is speculative for a very long time. This just happens to be the one where you can amass value very highly. And it's in the spotlight. Um, that doesn't make it okay, but it's just, that's just reality. And we need these people to be removed. And the more people that we do get out of the space that are like that, the, you know, the better chance we have of like building out what it can truly become.
1: And it gets me. It, it this might sound funny, but it does get me very excited when I see how successful fraudulent actors have been. And if those entities can reach this level of success, imagine people who are really pushing things forward and making a difference in the world can go.
0: Yeah, that's that. The the impact side of it um, is something I focus a lot on uh, in this show, and I I talked to probably I would say sixty to 70% of my guests now are marketers. Um, Interesting. And they come into this space. I, I purposely go for marketers that were not in Web3 and moved to Web3 and had experience outside of Web3. Cause what they're doing is they're taking what's useful out of this space. And then they're coming in for a lot of the same reasons people that are native to this space came in, which is like the ability to bring collective groups together around shared values, pool capital and actually affect some sort of change that are related to those values. And that's powerful. It's really powerful.
1: That's a perfect way to put it. I think this is the first time we can create a system that removes the need to trust some third party to maintain the ledger of ownership that acts as the economic incentives to drive people's action and the best predictor of human action is the incentive if you incentivize someone like in law firms to work two thousand hours a year they're much more likely to do it than if you only incentivize them to work 1500 and when you think of something like DAOs and crypto generally now you can have these incentives in place that don't require something like a cap table to be managed by one person who could arbitrarily trade it or or arbitrarily change it in a manner that they feel it's just to me and i think as lawyers we're able to recognize the importance and the cost that we place on trust i was talking to a friend earlier about when you have a about contracts and Thinking of DeFi in the in the span of contracts when you have a contract lender borrower agreement even one with your bank you're trusting the court stop hold it you're trusting the bank to honor their promises you're trusting the financial system to remain intact you're trusting the internet to stay you're trusting so many different actors that all play a role meanwhile when you're in DeFi you the amount of people you have to trust is so much smaller therefore the cost you have to pay for that trust is so much smaller, and I think that itself will provide so much more efficiency and unlock capital to be used in so many better ways. A really good example is even comparing Bitcoin to gold. If you're storing gold bars, think about the cost that are held that are expended to hold gold bars in Fort Knox or something. When you mm-hmm. compare it to like a USB stick that's in a safety deposit box with the private key, sort of spread out or the seed phrase spread out across the, the world, for example, it's just it's night and day difference. And so to me, the efficiencies that we're going to see in the economic activity, I think will really change the world.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think that what you're seeing is kind of like it's a flattening, right, overall, um, that things that I think that we had to rely on third parties for Mm -hmm. Uh, We no longer do. It's putting trust back into the individual, but also the collective, right? Um, Which is just, it's mind bending. If you talk to somebody about it, that doesn't know anything about this space, right? They're kind of like, well, wait, like, no, I just want to give my money to the bank, which is totally fine. But like, you, I mean, you see what happens with Silicon Valley Bank, like it still can happen, right? And and what happens if more of that happens, right? Like, it just, it's a check and balance, call it a balance, call it like a, a diversification, if you will, of our reliance on the way we do financial services. Now, It presents its own set of problems, right? Um, The uh, quality of the code, the quality of the people writing the code for these apps, these dApps that are running decentralized finance applications is more important than ever. We see DeFi hacks all the time. Um, Do you deal with uh, any of that in your work that you can kind of talk about or at least provide like a general opinion around?
1: In terms of hacks?
0: In terms of, yeah, like decentralized finance and the kind of the struggle to do quality contract auditing um, and, and maintain quality developers. Because a lot, I mean, look, blockchain is relatively new, right? Like not a lot of people uh, have been doing this for longer than a year or two. So um, that inexperience kind of plays through when you see a lot of these this money being stolen.
1: I mean, I think it is such an under-discussed topic and something that will have a huge impact going forward. It's difficult because it is so new. And even if you have smart contracts audited, for example, those audits could be mistaken. There can be errors, omissions. You can never fully be confident that what you have is unhackable. The DAO is a good example of this. Just like the Titanic was the unsinkable ship. It doesn't you know, you can never fully mitigate the risks from a legal side. It's not something we dive into as often because it is so technical and we can't really opine on the, on the code on the back end. What we can do is set up systems to protect the builders and. and protect them via contracts. And that's where that law of code comes into play to tie into the code is law ethos, where now you can set up a system to have some form of protection. That being said, it's not something I've typically seen in the DeFi space where most of the effectuation of a contract or any form of agreement is done on chain. That's where I do think we'll see moving forward, the importance of code auditors continue to grow and grow. And and I'm sure there'll be software systems that can find exploits. White hat hackers are, are growing in prominence as well, because it is a difficult dynamic where you want to incentivize people to find these problems, but you also don't want to incentivize them too much where they exploit them or spend all their time trying to hack your protocol. Uh, because if they're hacking for $60 million and you're only offering them 60000 it gets a lot more tempting for someone to to take the whole pie. And we've seen that in in many cases, like even Mango Markets with Avi, accused to, to have hacked the protocol. He probably could have just reported that and taken some sort of white hat hacker fee, but he felt justified in that code is law ethos. And I think that's something we're going to continue to see flushed out over the years as more and more people realize that, Code is not, in fact, law. Law is law, and law was created for a reason.
0: Yeah, no, it's it's a really good point. I mean, even if you go back to the the original hack of the DAO, right, back in two thousand seventeen, it's if you're exploiting something in the contract that's built into the contract, are you doing anything illegal, right? Uh, if 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 the law, if the code is law. Right? Um, And and so like, yeah, I'm actually just within the the confines of the smart contract doing what is possible.
1: See, it's interesting though, because I've always, my counter argument to that, Zach, is okay, but what if a bank vault was unlocked, right? And then nobody was watching at that second. Could you technically have walked in, stolen the money and walked out? Absolutely. But just because it's possible doesn't mean it's legal or obviously ethical or moral or anything, but it's an interesting dynamic though, because in the in the the case of a bank, for example, imagine you just execute a transaction and instead of the bank sending to you $10, they send you $10 million. What legal right do you have to that money? Arguably mm-hmm. not much, unless that you were a debtor, they had owed you that, and this was some form of repayment that was accidentally sent. There was a case um, like that, but In in this case, I just don't think you have any legal right to that, even though you're using the code as operated, just like in the case of a bank vault, because you use things the way they're meant to be used. Or sorry, just because you can use things in a certain manner that you're able to doesn't justify the actions or the consequences of those actions.
0: Yeah, totally understand. Uh, I, You know. I want to switch gears a little bit because you have a unique position in what you've done. You've talked to over 100 people on your show, and I can't imagine how many off the mic, right? Because to get to the point where someone comes on your show, sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it's just people that don't want to get recorded, right? Um, How have you seen the, I guess, the stance of both your guests and the regulatory landscape change since you started Law of Code two years ago?
1: That's a great question, Zach. It has seemingly become less optimistic in the US, frankly. The the conversations I've had over what's possible and what is likely to occur over the next couple years has seemingly shifted away from the US is the place to be, that this is where we're building, to now more of an ethos in You have to leave the U.S. if you want to be able to comply with with regulation or build something. And that's unfortunate because I think the U.S. historically has been successful because it was the land of opportunity, because there was freedom to build. There was this capitalism approach where if you identified a problem, presented a solution, you would benefit materially from that solution. Whereas in communism or in other areas of the world, there isn't that opportunity to do so on account not a counterpoint but on a side note to that the one thing that i found very consistent with my guests is the optimism for crypto and that was something i was interested in seeing because i didn't have the podcast back during the last bear run and i wasn't sure if my listeners would drop off when the price went down i wasn't sure after Terra luna crashed you know would this still be a tenable area to be in the resilience of this industry is amazing and i think because We've all been in the industry for a few years, and not all of us, but most people have been in the industry for a few years. They've seen the ups and they've seen the downs, but they've recognized that technology doesn't change. It's basically like saying the sun will rise whether you see it or not, even if you know it's cloudy that day or not. There is still this technology at the base layer and, and the promise of that technology really keeps me positive in the space and it's comforting to know that the the who's who of the crypto law bar for example is sticking around and continues to work to advise clients who are building really innovative projects in this space but that all is to say it is we have seen quite a bit of a chilling effect and a bit of anger as well in the u.s just on how untenable the regulation and how um, misleading statements by chair Gensler have been when it comes to just come in and register. There's a form on our website.
0: Yeah. It's, I mean, look, being, being based in the U S and Atlanta, I totally have all of those feelings. I think, uh, listening to his testimony earlier this week when we recorded this, um, was, uh, it was very frustrating because it was quite obvious one. He has no idea what he's talking about. Um, and two, he won't take it as a hardline opinion. Like you can't even get him to to kind of commit to to an opinion on whether ETH is a security or what it might what might entail. Whether it could be ruled a security, but then you see another Wells notice, um, and you're just like, well, what are we supposed to do here? I guess you know, to is this something that you've seen to Canada's benefit? Is there? Uh, some sort of benefit that, you know, countries that may be passing more regulation uh, have been more definitive in their stances on it um, are seeing because the U.S. is kind of, quote unquote, dropping the ball here.
1: Definitely. And it's something I think countries are beginning to capitalize on because they realize the inflow of economic activity that results in it. Canada was one of the first countries in the world to offer a Bitcoin-backed investment fund and the lawyers that I work with, uh, one of the lawyers I work with was part of the team that helped make that a reality. And we see in the US, the ETF, the SPOT ETF for Grayscale still hasn't been approved. They're still going to court. Meanwhile, in Canada, we've had this for years and investors can hold it in their registered accounts. They can hold it in tax-free savings account and benefit from the returns there. So we have seen a huge amount of capital inflow for that. We also have regulated staking. So in Canada, you can access through a registered crypto asset trading platform, staking services. And you can be confident that these staking services are following all the rule of law. So I do think it opens a huge opportunity. The difficult part is, and what's interesting about the US and most markets in the world is since the advent of electronic exchanges and alternative trading systems in the late 1990s, all the rules in place now pertain to anyone offering services to individuals in those jurisdictions. So even if you're based in the U.S. but only offer services to Canadians, you'll be regulated by the Canadian securities regulators if you're offering products that are deemed to be securities. So that makes it interesting in that, yes, you can come to Canada and set up and build a a service in a compliant manner here, but Who can you market to? Can you get access to customers in the US? And we haven't seen that case. It's often this domestic approach to law, which of course is the the way it works around the world. But I think crypto has really pushed the law towards a more, even more, unfortunately, more centralized method of governance. We see things like the travel rule and there's FATF and there's all the World Education Fund and all these different entities that can act as a global regulator which might not necessarily be the best thing for the world. I think there is something to be said about being able to vote with your feet and move to countries where you agree with the laws more than others. Um, but what what crypto in, in Canada specifically really does is we have a path to registration for crypto asset trading platforms. So in March, 2021, they issued staff notice 21329, which essentially said, crypto asset trading platforms come in and register. And the basis of that was that they held, and this was after Quadriga, which was a big black eye for Canada. So a lot of focus was on the custody was custody of the crypto by these crypto asset trading platforms and the custodians and, and a real focus there. And so what we saw was regulators taking the position that the assets themselves might not be securities, that's up to the platforms to decide, but the relationship that the customer has to the asset, meaning the customer themselves doesn't get the asset delivered to their wallet, but what they do is they have an underlying contractual right to the asset that's held on the platform of the crypto asset trading platform. So you don't, like when you hold, Bitcoin on one of these platforms, you're not actually, their their argument is that you're not actually holding this commodity, you're holding an, a derivative or a security, something and they call it a crypto contract that evidences your right to the asset. And then when you move it off the platform, then all of a sudden, now you have that commodity.
0: How does that vary from like um, public equity, like stocks?
1: It, it's different than stocks because they have two, two car votes. So when it comes to something like a crypto contract... Uh, or a crypto trading platform, there's two rules that, that pertain to them. The, well, there's a lot of rules, but there's two things that regulators said would make these platforms subject to securities laws. First would be that they're trading it in a security or derivative. So something that would obviously bring them within the jurisdiction. That's something that's traded like a share that has dividends and things like that. The difference between a crypto contract and a security though, is that the underlying crypto itself can't be a security. So what regulators say is that you're either trading a security and therefore we have jurisdiction or you're trading a crypto asset that isn't a security. And we have an enumerated list of securities that include evidence of indebtedness, notes, equities, bonds, etc. If you're holding a crypto asset that doesn't fit within any of those definitions, and that's up to you, crypto trading platform, to determine whether or not it is. If you say that it's not a security and you do choose to list it, but you don't effectuate immediate transfer of the asset, then all of a sudden now what you're doing is a securities, not a securities offering, but you're subject to securities law because you're giving access to investors who are purchasing these quote unquote securities therefore you're subject to our jurisdiction so the big difference is that these crypto contracts aren't evidencing security now whether that can stand up in court is still something frankly to be seen because there hasn't been any litigation on this and most of the law we've seen has been not official law it's been through staff notices which are pronouncements by the staff of the canadian securities administrators saying they're basically giving their opinion on the the way securities rules should apply to crypto assets
0: that's interesting i i go back to the kind of the model of the sec when you say that which is that um after actually here i actually learned about this from your show having hester Peirce on there earlier how they operate where like i mean essentially like the chair holds all the power, <laughs> and if they were to issue their opinion, what Chester Purse has done, it actually doesn't carry any weight. Yeah, um, which sounds like is different than what you're talking about in, in Canada.
1: Yeah, I mean the the way securities regulatory, uh, the way the securities regulatory landscape works in Canada is much different than the U.S. In the U.S., you have the SEC that was given all this power post Securities Act of 33 and, and 34. In Canada, we have 13 different provincial on territorial regulators. So each imagine each state in the US has its own securities regulator. Of course, that could lead to many different states having different rules and it could make it very expensive for participants to enter the capital markets. So in Canada, we have what's called a passport system where you can have a principal regulator and then passport the exemptive relief or any order you've received from that regulator to the other jurisdictions. What we also have is a Canadian group called the Canadian Securities Administrators, and this is a body that has no real force of law and they don't have any official powers, but what they do have is the ability to issue guidance that the provinces can adopt. Similar, I think, to the way the European Union could work where you have a proposed, or I think the better example would be the the UCC where they have these model laws that states can choose to adapt. And in Canada, we have this guidance that the prov- the provinces will agree on. Me- the, the CSA is made up of members of the different Canadian securities administrators. So they would issue guidance and then the different securities administrators would be charged with accepting enforcing and litigating and, and allowing registration upon the grounds listed in, in that guidance.
0: Yeah, and just for the audience, um... Can you explain what the UCC is? Because I have a feeling that some of my audience would be like, what is that? Yeah, it's
1: the the uniform commercial code. And and my understanding of it is that it acts as a model law that states can choose to adopt. So imagine we were to sit down and really think through certain problems and, and come up with laws that would help address them. We would put this out in the form of a model law through the UCC, and then a state like New York could decide this is something we want to adopt. Whereas something like California could decide, oh, we don't, we don't want to adopt rule X, Y, and Z. We'll, we'll keep things the way they are. That's my understanding. I'm not an American attorney. I did study American law, but I don't, uh, I don't want to do any disservice to my American listeners.
0: Yeah, I know. And 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 just expanding on it, just, just think: what what are the rules for trading goods? I think it's probably the easiest easiest right. way for for someone to think about it. Um, there are nuances there that determine whether or not you use the UCC or another set of laws. But um, you know, none of this is legal advice. Don't worry. There's a very nice disclaimer at the beginning of, uh, of the episode. <laughs> um, but it, it's a good point. I mean, it's it's funny. I was I was at a, um, uh, we have the Atlanta blockchain center here, uh, where we have the Thursday night's panels every single week. And it was a marketing panel, funny enough, cause this is mostly a marketing show. Um, and there was a big regulatory legal discussion. Gensler, uh, chair ginsler's Gensler's testimony was this week when we're recording this. And the, the question that was posed by me was what happens if you get a MICA slash GDPR, right? MICA is the crypto law regulation that just passed in the European Union. Uh, GDPR is the privacy law that just passed in the European Union. And then you get the US passing it like they're doing privacy, CCPA, state by state. It's a freaking mess and every single uh other state is like well i may have clients in california and they don't have the right exemptions it makes it really confusing if they start to do that with crypto regulation which is a little bit different because it's involved in the federal banking system but if they start to do that here like I'm, I'm worried. We don't have a passport law that allows yeah. you know people to adopt other laws or, or you know respect the decisions of other jurisdictions um, in that sense. So I don't know. I, it makes me it makes me nervous that someone's going to start to do it. But um, I mean, it could also maybe force the hand of of the of the uh, federal government to start passing stuff here, or we may just miss this. Right there a lot of people are kind of uh, becoming of that opinion, which is that like, hey, good job, you you did a great job regulating the internet early on. Uh, you're kind of missing the boat with this, um, so I don't know
1: <laughs> it'll be interesting to see what happens because i I'd be shocked if the u s does miss it. what seems to me the biggest problem is how overly politicized every decision has become, and this two party system I don't think does any favors,
0: yeah. Yeah, it's true. I mean, you sit here and you watch it. And, um, you know, one of, one of my kind of core values of some things I like try to communicate through the show and to people that I talk to um, is, you know, open and honest discourse is absolutely essential. And right now, the way that that uh, people communicate in this country, especially in the U.S., is is very much about relating how you think about something to your political affiliation um, and demonizing ostracizing people if they disagree with you which is that's troubling to hear right
1: uh, it's really dangerous it's really and it's I mean it's what happened you know before World War one World War two it's it's what's happened throughout history repeatedly and when you ha- can't have discussions that leads to big big problems and I think the politicization of everything and covid didn't help now science has become political it's just a dangerous path to go down when people remove logic and start f- thinking only with their emotions and it becomes us versus them and the big problem with democracy is that the 51 percent majority can do anything that they want to the 49 percent minority and that's not the way a system should work it should be you can impose rules that you would be willing to have the other side impose on you, and not to say I'm an anti-democratic person, but I do think you know we need to be cognizant of of the effects of the system, and and just because democracy has been the best form of governance compared to everything else doesn't mean you know we've thought of everything else.
0: Yeah, no, that you, there's a there's important nuance that you kind of highlighted there and what you were saying, and that is everything has. Really good characteristics and really bad characteristics about it, right? Um, and up until recently, we haven't really experienced at a high level, at like a high impact, rather uh, the negative effects of democracy, right? And so it's like the first time we're being forced to really think about it critically. Uh, personally, uh, I found one of the one of the best books to read on this uh, was um, Lee Kuan Yew's biography. Uh, from Singapore, at, which is an authoritarian state, right?
1: Is he Was he the the one who brought Singapore to the, its modern... Okay, I've heard amazing things. I mean, what, he, what what's happened with Singapore is incredible. I will definitely need to read that book.
0: Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'm happy and I'll post it in the show notes too if the audience is interested. But look, I mean, one of the things that I took away from it was um, there are ways to effectuate a voting system that are better than a one-to-one, right? Um, You can be democratic, but be a modified democracy. Um, One of the things that he would push forward was um, people that have the most impact on the economy should actually have an outsized impact on voting, right? And the way that he defined that was the people that are core building families. So basically, I I want to say it was like 30 to 50 years old, you got two votes. Everybody outside of those bands got one vote because it was it was in proportion to what exactly you are affecting, right? Like like the laws are going to affect you from those ages, in his opinion, more so than than any other ages because then you're in retirement age and or you're you know maybe going through school and kind of growing up and, and doing the other things. So it's um, wow, I, yeah, it's it's super practical. You'll enjoy it if if you give it a read. I actually. I listened to it. That's usually what I do, and I, I finished it in like two days.
1: Uh, oh, that's amazing! I mean, <laughs> have, have you been Have you been to Singapore? I've never been to Singapore, but it's on the bucket. List. It is. It, it's probably besides the heat, which was unbearable. It was my favorite country in the world. I mean, they call it a city in a garden, and it really is beautiful. And the architecture is incredible. But also, just how they've made it feel so natural, and it's so clean and safe. It, it's really. It's an unbelievable country, and I was a big fan of it. They have interesting rules, um, and then the laws are very strictly enforced. No spitting. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, spitting gum on the on the road. No. <laughs> I don't know if it's a like it's definitely illegal, but I don't know what the fine is. Um, but to give you an idea, we my my brother and I went to see a movie when we were there, and prior to the movie starting, there was this commercial that looked like it was for a SWAT movie that that was coming out, where the the SWAT team came in and they like killed the the Attacker, the bad guys, and then at the end, it was Singapore National Police. We're on your side. It was like very intense propaganda that I hadn't seen. Like you don't see that in Canada when you when you before you watch a movie. And so, (laughs) interesting other movies because it's consumer (laughs) culture. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. It's much more capitalistic. uh, Although it's it's very capitalism there. They have a really interesting healthcare system as well. with, With they have a mix of private and public, and it's self sustaining and the way they hire the government is un- unbelievable as well. Like that is the best job you can get in Singapore is working with the government, and I don't know too many people or too many countries that can say the same thing.
0: Yeah, they treat it more like a business, right? They they, right. they get that like. Uh, the, one of the biggest problems here, I can't speak for Canada, but one of the biggest problems here is that like, once you work for the federal government, it's like almost impossible to fire you. Um, right. And so you have a lot of dead space, a lot of people that are just doing nothing, but like it's too too much of a pain in the ass to, to try and get rid of you, um, even if you aren't adding any value, Whereas you know, in countries like Singapore, uh, where they take a slightly different approach, like it, this is a business. Are you coming in? Are you supporting the things? Are you are you doing the right things? Are you adding value? Are you doing your job well? Um, uh, it's you know, like you get to, they get to learn from our mistakes, right? Um, right, and, right,
1: and and, and and it all goes back to incentives as well, right? If yeah. you're an employee and you have no incentive to work harder than the next guy, or your incentive is to clock out at three no matter what else needs to be done, that's what you're gonna do. Yeah. yeah. And that's um, what they do. <laughs> well, not all of them. I, I, there are great government workers, but yeah. it's just a matter of incentives. Hundred percent, hundred percent. This is not
0: to call out everybody there, but the like, like you said, the incentives are not there. Um, mm-hmm. So you have to kind of. Be a a self-motivated person to do a really good job in some instances, Um, which if you've ever been to a a Department of Motor Vehicles uh, (laughs) establishment here uh, in the U.S., you'll figure that out real
1: quick. Um, I always hear jokes about that. You gotta explain it to me. Are the lines just ridiculous? Like, what is what is the deal there?
0: Um, You know, it's. (laughs) I think the best meme is like the sloth behind the thing, like. And, and, and for people that are listening, I'm moving really slowly, <laughs> moving things to the side. There's no incentive to get people through efficiently. So what are they going to do? They're going to take their freaking time and be like, well, you know, I needed to double, triple, quadruple check that thing. Uh, and that's why I could only see three people today. Um, and so, yeah, that's it, 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 it. they're just, it's really slow uh, and inefficient. Now it's gotten better. Now you can actually like go and fill out most of the stuff and renew online. Um, but, you know, kind of bringing this back to Web3, like anything like that that has systems of record stands to benefit from blockchain. Um, have you, I know we've done a lot of talk about crypto and securities and all that, but the identity space is hot right now. Um, it's, it's a, it's an uphill battle because you're having to convince people to change the way that they keep track of things, but it's actually way more efficient. Are you, uh, encountering any stuff in Canada or otherwise, um, through your guests, um, that's interesting in that identity space?
1: You know, Zach, not as much as I would have liked. I, I really hope to see more. There was one guest that I had early on Sina Kian. He's a vice president at Leo mm-hmm. and they're building a zero knowledge proof based blockchain. To me, zero knowledge proofs are um, such an incredible innovation. And I was talking to Johnny Lee; he's from Atlanta as well. I don't know if you know Johnny. Um, no, and
0: you have to introduce me though. I try to okay. try to meet up with everybody here.
1: Yeah, happy to. He's, he he works in the audit um, and forensic investigation space, I believe, at Grant Thornton. Mm-hmm. And you know, we were just talking about privacy and how it really is unbelievable that you can. Give or you're forced to give this website with servers located who knows where, all your personal information that they do, that they store for some arbitrary reason. And when you apply for a rental property, for example, you have to give your landlord all this information about how much money you make and everything. If there was a system that could be act as a green light, red light, yes, this person meets the predefined criteria, but you don't get any of their underlying personal information that to me is the most obvious example of where a system like this can effectuate privacy in much much better ways than we currently have and when i was in law school i actually wrote a paper on why blockchain technology provides the gdpr with the solution that it was intended to create and for those unfamiliar the gdpr is the broad and and very um detailed privacy standards that the European Union upholds. I can't recall exactly what the acronym stands for, but it is an important rule that sort of sets the baseline of privacy law in the US or in the European Union. And blockchains can enable this privacy because now you have a trustless system that you know can't be manipulated by one party. The really difficult part will be getting the tie-in from those on the other side of the field, the regulators, the people who are currently collecting this information to trust the system. And I think the one way that that'll work is if they're the ones creating the systems themselves. And so I hope that we'll start to see more tools that enable individuals and companies and businesses interact with blockchain in a much more simplified way much like working with the internet is much easier now. And thank you, Alan, the GDPR, it's General Data Protection Regulation.
0: Let's go, good job. Shout out to Alan. Got a big shout out to the producer on that one. (laughs) You know, it's interesting. I, uh, when when I was practicing, I still practice part-time. I was in-house at a SaaS software company Uh, that, um, it was called user testing and what their product was, was, um, it was user testing for lack of a better word, but basically what. You would come to us if you wanted to test your digital experience. Um, we had a panel of people. You could segment them by different demographics, um, different characteristics like income, uh, what kind of computer they use, what kind of phone they have, that kind of stuff. And you could watch them going through your website or your application experience. Now, it's a little bit broader than that, but as you can imagine with that, There's a lot of privacy concerns, right? Um, There is a lot of information, personally identifiable information or personal data, depending on the regulatory regime, um, that uh, could be processed. What GDPR is focused on is who's the controller, who's the processor? and the controller has certain obligations and the processor has certain obligations, right? And the, the conversation that I had over and over and over, because this is not usual for software, is that the purchaser, the customer of our software was actually the controller of the data because they were asking the questions to the panelist, right? Uh, and GDPR was like, I mean, it's like the gold standard. I mean, for all intents and purposes, because they got there first, um, there's been emulation of it, CCPA, which I I referenced earlier. Um, but it's a good point, right? If you had a way to verify that all of the, the, uh, let me take a step back when you're differentiating between what is personal data and what is not personal data, what can link you back to the actual person? Right. Things like name, birth date, things like that are very important. But if you only know that it is an African-American female between the ages of 25 and 35 who makes over one hundred thousand dollars a year, that's not considered PII in the U.S. sense or personal data on its own. It's only when it's paired with other stuff. That's where zero knowledge proofs come in right you can have all that data in the background but no company would really need it to do certain things like user testing if they just know those non-personally identifiable characteristics
1: it's a great example zach and i think it's amazing how quickly i think we we've just grown up in an age where personal privacy particularly online it i think it was a slow adoption process first you'd give an email address then you'd give your first and last name then first and last name and home address then first last name home address and phone number now we're adding social insurance number like the the what you have to give to to be a part of certain platform has continued to grow. But because it was such a small and and slow evolution, we've sort of become numb to this idea that, oh, I'm giving this Panamanian company all my personal data because I want to access a better derivatives exchange, right? It it just, it's a little incredible to think how, if someone were to ask you on the street, like, what's your address? You'd be so weirded out, you would never give it to them. But online, it's such a thing... It's just something that we do, right? I did it while I was
0: parking the other day. I was someone asked you. (laughs) They asked for my address, along with my credit card information, along with my birthday, along with my first and last name, along with my phone number and my email to park. And
1: that was online
0: yeah and all they care about is getting paid right like that's the ultimate point like i want to make sure if you're parking in a spot that you need to get paid you can get paid so all i should really have to do is connect it to an account call it venmo cash app my bank account whatever it is through some third-party provider that shows zach can afford to pay you and does pay you and if he in if he extends past a certain point he could pay you again
1: <laughs> yeah <laughs> Yeah, and and that just comes like, that's where something like crypto will play a huge role because now you can leave a deposit. You can trust the code that the parking will only charge it until you drive away. Once you drive away, it automatically gives you your refund back. Now both sides are, are confident that a deposit was made and that the parking fee will be paid. And everything goes back to the ability to trust. And trust is such a core foundation of our society that now that you have a technology that can instill trust, among people who don't know and have no other reason to trust each other what a change what a paradigm shift what an amazing technology that will really change the landscape of the world going forward
0: yeah i mean it's like you know if i had to summarize like systems of record uh privacy um like these core characteristics that we have done one way for so long and has honestly gotten out of hand, right? Um, the ends, the, for instance, on systems of record, I always give is my sister got divorced, but the person at the clerk's office in her local jurisdiction had accidentally crossed out her signature. So there was no copy of her divorce decree where she actually signed it. So she had to go back and refile and get her ex-husband, which is obviously, you know, know, sometimes it's amicable, sometimes it's not. Sometimes I just don't wanna talk to you anymore. And so like all this because of human error. Whereas if her divorce was on the blockchain, it would be check that block, of confirmed that it was actually entered properly according to whatever the standards are set by that government and you're good, right? Um, what I'm seeing uh, and I continue to see is a lot of, um, there's a lot more eloquent word for this, basically dual action, which is that, uh, you know, like uh, companies like uh, Proppy and like these companies that are trying to sell houses as NFTs and titles and deeds that are much more efficient systems of record on the blockchain, they're doing both. <laughs> they're they're doing it mm-hmm. the the way that it's been done with the system of record uh, filing properly sometimes wet signatures and then they're doing it on the blockchain too and when and if there ever is you know litigation around this they can go back and say hey look Mr Judge you see how much more efficient it is and how much I can prove this right. more so than than going back but like that's a long game and and time is not. On our side, um, as as I would say, so.
1: <laughs> well, it's true, and and I think anything, if you look back throughout history, I'm sure the way things evolved would look very similar to that, where you have an existing incumbent, and the new technology is a step up, but it does need to tie into the existing system in some way. I'm sure with the internet and filing records online, the. The technology has been there for so long even something like notarizing documents why could we not do that via skype 10 years ago <laughs> right it's just how is that any more safe and even entering your social insurance number now like with a, with a private key or something there's just so many efficiencies that can be done the problem is governments are huge structures like you said earlier many of them have no incentive to move quickly and foster innovation. Because why is that in their best interest? They're getting paid no matter what at the end of the day. And so if if you don't have those systems that tie into the existing infrastructure, you can't, like you said, show them, hey, here's exhibit A, here's exhibit B. Exhibit A was 10 times faster, 100 times cheaper. Why don't we try to adopt that in a very small way moving forward?
0: just for the audience is social insurance number, the same thing as social security number in the US. Yes. Sorry. No, no, it's all good. It's all good. I just want to make sure I wasn't, I was assuming that, but I want to make sure anybody that's like, kind of on the fence of like, what is a social insurance number? Um, Yeah. But for all my Canadian listeners out there, shout out. Uh, (laughs) But anyways, we're, we're like nearing the top of the hour. Uh, This has been a lot of fun. I think this has been uh, one of the more in-depth discussions around, you know, the legal system and regulatory capture. And for those people that are like, wait, isn't this usually about like marketing and brand? Guess what? This is about overcoming the impediments that are keeping Web three from getting mass adoption. And safety and regulation is a primary focus. Uh, if you guys have listened to the other episodes with Girat's founder um, or Chainalysis CMO that does forensic blockchain, I mean those those types of businesses and, and, and lawyers and podcasts people like Jacob, like they're the ones that are going to put us in the right place so that the next couple hundred million people can adopt this technology and governments can adopt this technology. So that's why I brought you on, man. This has been hugely informative. I've got two traditional closing questions. The first one is, how do you describe Web3?
1: I, descri- descri- I, descri- <laughs> I describe Web3 as... A paradigm shift in ownership and control from centralized third parties that are often in adverse positions to their customers to a method of ownership and control that is customer first, much more like a co-op structure where members are the ones who govern, members are the ones who benefit, members are the ones who participate in how the entity itself moves forward and a good example i like to give is looking at social platforms where currently the model is let's keep people on the platform as long as possible to get to sell as much advertising space to advertisers future model web3 model how do we benefit ourselves and how do we create something that we all want that isn't predicated on us spending as much time on the app as possible and can lead to a much more equitable outcome for all, as well as reward the people who actually make the, the product and the service what it is.
0: Yeah, that's a really, really good point and, and quite prescient if you've if people have listened to recent episodes with Dan Romero over at Farcaster. Um, it, it if you change that incentive alignment and the way that you know the algorithms prioritize, you know, what they want you to do within the app, what happens? And I think like the most natural place for people to start is like, wait, do I get to sell my data? So do I get to see some of that money? And like, maybe, right? There's been a few attempts at that, but really more like is it providing value when you go inside these apps, right? Mm-hmm. Not, not necessarily monetary value, but like, are you going in there and having a deeper discussion about Regulation, a deeper discussion about how you can build a family the right way, or, you know, anything that is actually adding value as opposed to doom scrolling, as I like to call it, um, which is kind of where we're at now because it's all about how much can I, how long can I keep people in there? Uh, The social dilemma, I think it was what it was called, had had an interesting illustration of that with the command center and all that. So, um, anyways, the the final question that I ask every guest, um, and this is meant to be fun, Uh, I, not asking you to predict the future, but uh, I kind of am. Uh, I asked them, you know, where do you see yourself in this space writ large in the next six to 12 months? And where do you see yourself in the space in the next five to 10 years?
1: That's a good question. Um, I think in the next six to 12 months, I continue to see myself in the space advising clients on navigating the regulatory landscape in Canada. So not a very fun answer. Uh, But I think over the, the five to 10 years, I do think we'll start to see some rules that change the game and enable the system to proliferate. That being said, though, I think we don't need as much regulation as people say. There's all this harp and we can't operate unless we have regulation, blah, blah, blah. Bitcoin is operating perfectly fine. It does not need regulation to enforce who's running the nodes, who's running the miners, who's transacting. What we do need is some comfort for novel business structures to exist. Things like DAOs. That's where I think, and that's where I hope to play an important role in stewarding policy forward. And and one really good book that I've read is called The Company, and it's about the history of the joint stock corporation and the limited liability company. Because if you look at what organization has made the biggest impact on human history, you could say the church, you could say the state, the government, but companies have a really strong argument that they have been the most important innovation. And what do companies do at their core? Is they facilitate economic activity amongst organizations of people in a much more efficient way. And things like DAOs, technology like crypto, now can do that in a way that was never before possible. And so to me, I think there are existing rules that work. There is some room for improvement of the public policy, but ultimately I think we can build a system given the rules we have now. If they adapt to effectuate better, more effective systems, that will be an enormous advantage to any state that implements those rules because you're essentially taking the the breaks off and allowing much more effective form, formations of capital. And you're essentially freeing people to build in a way that they never before could, just like the internet provided an ability to communicate in ways we never that never before would have been possible. Blockchain does that with value. And I think over the next five to 10 years, I hope to play an important role or at least a very, very small role in that. Um, whether it's interviewing people and, and getting their perspective on things or working on a policy side as well and hoping to continue to have conversations like this, Zach, because I really admire the work you do. I think the Web3 and Me With Me podcast is great. You ask really good questions. You're a great interviewer. So thanks for thanks for having me on. It really was a privilege.
0: Yeah. No, thank you. I, I feel exactly the same way when people ask me, like, what are my top Web3 podcasts? Um, yours is one that I point them to, um, because again, the focus here, my, my mission, since i you know, quit my regular job to do all this stuff is like, I want to legitimize this industry and you're doing a lot of work to do that. Um, so thank you, Jacob. Thanks for coming on, man. This was a blast.
1: Oh, my pleasure, man. Anytime. And thanks for the kind words. I think all credit goes to the guests and to everyone in this industry for being so friendly and welcoming. I've only been in it for about three or four years now, but I think it is uh, a great industry to be in. and I'm excited for what's next.
0: Thanks for tuning in to Web3 with me. If you enjoyed the show and want to help us grow, please hit the subscribe button on YouTube or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. If you want to connect with me personally, you can find me on Twitter at Zach underscore French underscore.